We return this morning to Matthew chapter 3, and we will be considering verses 1 through 12 for the first time in this morning hour. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Father, we thank you this morning for our first consideration of this dynamic record concerning the preaching ministry of John the Baptizer. You know, as this congregation knows, that we have personally long appreciated this dear man of God and the ministry that he faithfully enjoined in introduction to Christ. Help us then, as we consider the man, Help us then as we consider beginning today the message of that man in a moment of time as delineated and prescribed in our text. And help us to make righteous applications to our own lives this morning for the benefit of saints and for the benefit of anyone among us that is yet indeed in their sins. We thank you for the occasion. We ask your blessing upon your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. We all know that when the military drill sergeant said to the new recruit, real men don't cry, 
he wasn't telling the truth. We all know that when Frankie Valley sang, big girls don't cry, he sang not the truth. In both cases, the word crying is associated with emotional weakness, as when a little child cries over some incidental thing that doesn't matter at all. And, of course, that is a flag to mother that it is now well past due time for a nap. But there are, as you know, other meanings to be associated with the word cry and crying. Some American Indians were known for their war cry. And of course, the old British herald of the king or the queen was commonly known as the town crier. That would be, of course, the closest use of the word cry as found in 3.3 of our text, where we have the prophetic word cry defining the preaching ministry of John the Baptizer, as predicted, Isaiah 43 fulfilled Matthew 3.3 in record. As God's herald, John the Baptizer cried out or proclaimed the news of that day that was coming right out of heaven. Matthew connects first century John's preaching ministry with that prophecy of old, Isaiah 40 and verse 3. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke all connect the preaching ministry of John to Isaiah 40. God's prophet Isaiah, 700 years before John the baptizer, proclaimed comfort to the Jewish people at a time when most of the Jewish tribes had already fallen into captivity and were exiled out and away from the land of promise. Isaiah ministered at a time just before the few remaining Jews, uh, particularly those of Judah and Benjamin, would likewise fall and be exiled because of their sin and their failure to turn to God in repentance. And so Isaiah, in a time with no visible hope for the Jewish nation, spoke of a time upcoming when Messiah would bring redemption from sin and deliverance from Gentile oppression. Isaiah prophesied that previous to the arrival of Messiah, a herald would be identified who would make an announcement of Messiah's coming in a place most unlikely, namely the wilderness. Isaiah prophesied of a voice crying, proclaiming, uh, in the wilderness. Matthew tells us that John is that voice. 3-3, three, three, for this is he. John the baptizer is the man of promise and prophecy preceding, as it were, God's Messiah. Now this idea is confirmed, as we have seen it together on multiple occasions, from the prophecy of Malachi, the last prophecy of the Old Testament era, concerning a messenger that precedes the coming of the Lord. Isaiah talk of a, talk of a crier, of a, a town crier, who would proclaim uh, uh, Messiah's arrival. 
Uh, Malachi speaks of a messenger who precedes the messenger, of a messenger who precedes the capital M messenger out of heaven, of a messenger who precedes the Lord on earth. Malachi chapter 3. John the baptizer is the man of fulfillment. Isaiah 40, Malachi chapter 3. We want to begin our focus upon the content of John's preaching as represented in this text today and return to finish up with that next time together. We want to listen to the cry of John, to the proclamation of John the baptizer in the wilderness. We want to carefully characterize his preaching so as to distinguish the recorded moment in time and the baptism of repentance which he ministered. Now, the first thing that I would call your attention to concerning the content of John the Baptizer's preaching ministry has to do with what is announced to us in verse 2, where John is recorded saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Hear ye, hear ye, repent. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, in his excellent book, Thy Kingdom Come, calls repentance that same old message of the Old Testament prophets. John preached the same old message of the Old Testament prophets. What did Isaiah preach? Repent. What did Jeremiah preach? Repent. What did Haggai preach? Repent. What did Habakkuk uh, preach? Uh, Repent. What did all the prophets preach? Repent. Turn to God. Repent. What did John preach? Repent. He came preaching a message of repentance. Turn to God, return to God, was the prophetic message again and again and again based upon the fact that the Jewish people were, number one, God's special covenant people, that he had called that nation to himself in relational dearness in Abraham, and he had specified the nature of the nation's relationship to him by means of communication through Moses. And so it is to those people that again and again and again and again and again and again and again, the Old Testament prophets and John the baptizer came saying, uh, repent. If the people turned to God in obedience, if they repented, they would know God's favor and blessing. If they disobeyed, they would know God's escalating judgments until being booted out of the land of promise. Yet God, by the prophets like Isaiah and Malachi, communicated to the sinful people who had been booted out that God would indeed in a coming day intervene and fulfill his promise in the coming one, in the Messiah. God's promise and prospect of hope for the Jewish nation, as stated, is familiar to us because it has been falsely applied to the United States of America. I would dare say that everybody in this room has heard the promise of God for the nation of Israel. Here's how it reads. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. Uh, that tremendous promise, Second Chronicles 7.14, given to the nation of Israel, and that would be the scriptural uh, basis of John's crying in the wilderness. That message that is popularized in our day coming out of Second Chronicles 7.14 almost summarizes in a nutshell uh, the preaching ministry of John the Baptizer under the word uh, repent. Yet when Messiah did come unto his own, as most of you already know, his own received him not. Thus we've said from the beginning of our study of Matthew's gospel presentation that he wrote this gospel account to present to us Jesus as the Christ or Jesus as the Messiah and, and to explain why there's been a delay in God's kingdom come because of the nation's rejection of Christ's first advent. However, John, the official forerunner of Messiah, preached repentance as a necessary response in and among the Jewish people of that day so as to trigger the fulfillment of promise and prophecy to the Jewish nation concerning the glories of Messiah. That invokes the reason why John is preaching that old and warn prophetic message to repent. Hear ye, hear ye, repent. Now we preach in this modern era of the church a message of repent, and we preach that message of repent to sinners that need to be saved, and we preach that message of repentance to saints who still sin, and need to indeed turn to the Lord for their growth and sanctification. So we still preach the aspect of repentance in some of the same lines as John the baptizer, and yet the particular message that John was preaching was very narrow in national focus and is not exactly the same message that we preach today when we preach the gospel of Christ. And uh, you'll see that more and more as we continue to work through this particular content of John the Baptizer's preaching ministry. Hear ye, hear ye, repent. Secondly, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, prepare. If you look at verse 3 again towards the second part, uh, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness says, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. John says, prepare. John preached repentance for the time of God's kingdom was Come, and the Jewish people must prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah, as exactly forecast in the Old Testament prophecy by returning to Yahweh with all their heart, with all their mind, and with all their soul. Shema. God requires of the Jewish nation the spirit of Shema in order for the kingdom to be established as promised. 
John, who we might have expected to serve and be dressed like a priest because that's what his father was, is rather called of God and presents himself as dressed like an Old Testament prophet. He did not wear the refined garments of a priest. He wore the rude and crude garments of an Old Testament prophet. Verse 4, instead of eating the meat of sacrifice, people would bring their sacrificial meat to the tabernacle in the sense of a live critter. Their critter would be slain uh, before God at the tabernacle in the name of the person that brought it. The blood would be collected. Some would be uh, poured out at the, at, the altar of the base, uh, at the base of the altar. And that animal would be, uh, would be placed upon the burnt offering, uh, creating, as it were, meat. Meat that in certain sacrifices would be eaten by the worshiper who brought it, but in most, sac- most sacrifices, eaten by the priest who, 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 who cooked it. And so the priest normally ate of the meat and the food things that were brought to the tabernacle or to the temple uh, under the law. But John neither dressed like a priest, but of course he eats a strange diet in that he eats locusts, which interestingly are particularly mentioned under the law as appropriate insects to eat, locusts, biblically endorsed as a good food source, locusts, and wild honey. His food, locusts and wild honey. Yet his prophetic cry is brought forth in the most unlikely of a place, and it struck a chord among the Jewish commoners and outcasts, as verse 5 and 6 report, as multitudes of people readily confessed their sins and prepared for the coming of the king and his kingdom as prompted. Again, verse 5, Then went out to him, John the baptizer, Jerusalem, and O Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Yet not by any means did the majority of the Jewish nation, and certainly not those of national, political, or religious leadership, come to John with right-minded purpose and heart. That's why John called such men uh, a brood of vipers or a pit of snakes. Uh, in verse 7. John recognized that a lot of the response that was coming towards him was not legitimate response. Nonetheless, his message was one of repentance from sin, turning to God, and preparing for the promised king and his kingdom. As you continue to listen to John preach, confronting the insincere that come his way and commending the sincere of heart, you see that he contrasts his work, preparatory work, and the activity of the greater work, an activity of Messiah. And so for this morning, I ask you to jump with me to verse 11, where John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire.
John preaches boldly as one humble and subjected to God. He does what he does in preparation. He does what he does for identification of a remnant. His baptism is the external demonstration of a Jewish individual's willingness to turn from sin unto God in preparation for the greater work of Messiah. Therefore, the baptism of John has no direct connection to the baptism of the believer in the New Testament era after the death of Christ, except that it does. What did I just say? I just said it doesn't, and it does. And if you want to know more about that, you're going to have to come next week. Because <laughs> I don't have time this morning to get into all that. But I'm just telling you that, that there is no connection between John's baptism and the baptism of the believer in the waters of baptism. And yet there is. And that's the only way you can say it truthfully. And I'm going to have to leave it right there. So I hope I've piqued your curiosity. And, uh, and next week you'll be back. Lord willing, next week you will be back. The greater baptism of Messiah does not involve a physical act in the waters of testimony. But a spiritual reality in holiness. Now, let me just whet your appetite for where we will be going next week. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm going to give you a statement, and I'm going to have very little to say about the statement other than to give it to you. But this is the line of thinking in which we need to think together in order to master the uniqueness of the presentation of Matthew's gospel that is before us in hand. In the waters of John's baptism, sin was confessed. In the fire of Christ's baptism, sin is destroyed. In the waters of John's baptism, people said, I'm unholy. In the fire of Christ's baptism, people are made holy. That contrast is phenomenal. In the fire of Christ's baptism, sin is destroyed. And we might ask, where is it destroyed? And it is destroyed at the cross. And those desiring him are made holy so as to live holy. One more time, in the fire of Christ's baptism, sin is destroyed. And it will be destroyed at the cross. And those desiring him made holy so as to live holy. And so after telling us that he came unto his own and his own received him not, John the Apostle said, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the authority, to be the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
The greater baptism of Messiah does not involve a physical act in the waters of testimony, but the spiritual reality of holiness. The baptism of the king is of fire, says verse 11. The word of origin is pure, from which we get our English word purity. Therefore, there is a cleansing from sin associated with the king that goes far, 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 far beyond any sense of cleansing or confession or forgiveness associated with John's water baptism. The cleansing of the king involves an actual standing in righteousness before God. The fire of Christ's baptism is, in my thinking, with a son who is a state park ranger with a specialty in prescribed fire, uh, in my mind, I cannot think about the baptism of Christ with fire apart from the thought of it is a divinely prescribed fire. It is intended as fire to do what fire does, destroy and the thing that it destroys, the fire of Christ, the thing that it destroys is sin. And the application of that fire has both a present sense and a future sense. And both are attended to in this text. Again, next week, when we continue on with the preaching ministry of John, we'll see that this uniqueness of application of fire is held to the end in concerning the aspect of chaff to be burned away. And in fact, when the Lord returns, our God who is a consuming fire will indeed burn away all of the chaff and sin shall be no more. In the meantime, the fire of God's judgment fell at the cross upon the sinless one. And if you and I receive the judgment of God, which fell on Christ at the cross, on that basis, you and I are declared to be holy in standing before God. And informed of the scripture by the Spirit, that we are to live holy. And so like next week, when we come to the communion table, we'll read these words. If we would judge ourselves, and I might add according to the fire of Christ's baptism at the cross, if we would judge ourselves as believers, we should not be judged. But even when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
And so I hope your mind is starting to stir here as to the uniqueness of what John is doing in the preaching of the king and his coming kingdom because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is a kingdom in which ultimately sin cannot exist. And we are on our way to that. It has nothing to do with the Democrats. It has nothing to do with the Republicans, although they may be saved as well if they will turn to the Lord. Wow. I mean, this is a preacher's text. I'm just telling you. John the Baptist always does this to me. I mean, I I love this guy. I just love this guy. But wow, 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 wow. What tremendous connections are found in this section of the Word of God. Now, this idea, of course, of of, of God doing something that actually changed the disposition of the heart. This idea that God intervenes to the actual disposition of the heart is something, again, that the Jewish prophets attended to again and again and again. You and I are most familiar with how Jeremiah says it. Jeremiah says, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. Now again, Jeremiah 31 is talking about Jewish people. And it's only talking about Jewish people. In the next hour, I'll make the point of emphasis that all the covenants, all the biblical covenants, are only with Jewish people. Gentile dogs like me, there are no pacts, no covenants made with us before God. We'll get to that. But here's the point I want to make for now. Only clean-hearted people, as God knows clean, can dwell in God's kingdom. And that's why when the Lord Jesus stands up on the mount, and begins to proclaim the kingdom standards by which he operates out of heaven, he will say, teens, listen to this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart is impossible for me. Purity of heart is impossible for you. In fact, one of the things that the Old Testament prophets asked is, can any man cleanse his own heart? No. But I would remind you this morning that that which is impossible for us has to meet up with the fact that nothing is impossible for God. God can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. If you will present yourself to him, he will do for you which cannot be done. And I'm talking about a clean heart before the Lord. You and I know that only the Lord Jesus can make a person's heart pure. John's faithful preaching ministry pointed to that reality. Jesus is the promised one. He is the coming one. He is the Messiah that cleans 
and purifies as predicted. The holiness of God that is demanded is the holiness that only he can provide. The holiness of God demanded as you come to grip with something of its fussiness when you read the Old Testament law. That sense of holy, holy, holy can only be met by God himself. And thereby the holiness that God demands is the holiness that he provides. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. God's provision is God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Dwight Pentecost says it this way, John's message not only included a scathing denunciation of sin, and urgent exhortations to repentance, but offered hope in the great one coming after him, John the Baptizer, namely Jesus Christ. That hope is exclusively found in Christ. He is the holy hope of a deep and abiding cleansing by which an individual may stand before God and that forever. John's baptism is not the same as believers' baptism in emphasis or in meaning. But John's message of repentance and preparation is much the same as the truth we preach concerning the gospel of Christ and the truth of our Lord's soon return in power and glory. And we preach that message both to sinful people and to saints. Again, In the waters of John's baptism, sin was confessed. What were the people saying publicly by means of being baptized? They were saying, I am unholy, I am unholy, I am unholy, I am unholy. I know that I am unholy, I know that I am unholy, I know that I am unholy, and I'm willing for you to know that of me. And I enter into these waters of baptism at the cry of John so that you would know that of me and know this, that I'm waiting for God to fulfill his promise of the one who can fix me. I cannot fix myself. But there is one promise of God who can fix the soul and make it absolutely right before the Almighty. And we know that one to be Jesus Christ. Wow. And so as people are being baptized of John, they're saying, I'm unholy. I'm unholy. I'm unholy. I'm unholy. Let me plant one more seed. We'll get there. It'll be at least maybe three weeks. But I'm unholy. So think about all these people. I'm unholy. I'm unholy, I'm unholy, I'm unholy. And then along comes the Holy One. And he says, I want to go in those waters. I want to enter that dirty bath water of unholy testimony 
Why? Tell me why would the Holy One do that? Well, I'll tell you why. He became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'll tell you, it's hard not to preach this as a gospel message. You know what I'm saying? Boy, today, if you're not in the Lord, it'd be a great day for you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus. All God's people say, amen to that. This hope is exclusively found in the person of Christ. John's message of repentance and preparation is very much the same as we preach today, and yet it was unique and distinct and connected to the ethnic Jewish people of the day. And therefore, I tell you that John's baptism isn't anything like the baptism of the believer in this New Testament era. Except, of course, it is. One thing for sure, the text reminds us that God is surely serious about your sin and my sin. God's promise of the return of Jesus the Christ is certain. And on that basis, it is not inappropriate for any, in any way for us to preach to you a message of repent and prepare. Turn for your sins, turn to God, prepare for that which is ultimately coming as Jesus comes again. You may have already personally entered into the kingdom by nature of your faith in Christ. And yet you and I are still taught of the Lord to pray, thy kingdom We'll build upon John's preaching content next week as we return to the text, but for now let's simply note that there are, or there were rather some Jewish people in the first century living in Israel that knew the ancient prophecies concerning Messiah. And once they heard John preach a message of repentance and preparation for the king, they were more than willing to enter into the waters of testimony. Waters of testimony that say, I'm unholy, I'm unholy, I know I'm unholy. But I know that God has promised to send one who is holy, who can make holy. And on that basis, we understand the difference between the baptism of water under John and the baptism of fire under Christ. Spurgeon, my dead buddy. He says it this way, the people that were expecting Messiah went out in mass to John as soon as his shrill voice startled the silences. Preachers have funny dreams on a Saturday night. It's part of the process of getting ready to preach the next day, and one of the things that I think almost every preacher I've ever known dreams at some point is that he shows up for the service and there's nobody there. You come to, you come to the preaching moment and there's nobody there. Uh, that's a, a concern. And the question would be, what would you do as a preacher if you came to the preaching moment and nobody was there? And I got thinking about this thought. Do you think John had the crowd before he started preaching? Or do you think he started preaching before he had the crowd? My guess would be is that John started preaching before he had the, the crowd. That John's out in the wilderness saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is 
at hand, and there are people that are just on their way going someplace. They say, what is that? Who is that? What, what's going on here? And then they, yeah, a little crowd. And then pretty soon, who is that? What is that? And then a bigger crowd. And as the text tells us, eventually Jerusalem and Judea and all the regions around about. That's part of what has molded my philosophy of ministry that if only one person shows, you ought to preach. And even if nobody shows, I mean, this would take guts. I don't know that I'd really have the courage to do it, but I'd like to think of myself that I would. That if nobody shows, I'd start preaching anyhow and hope somebody came. <laughs> because I honestly think that's what happened for John. I think John went to the place where God assigned him. He began to cry out the message of repentance and the kingdom at hand. And uh, the crowd gathered to the truth of God in that moment of time. Wow. Hear ye, hear ye, repent. Hear ye, hear ye, prepare. Uh, hear ye, hear ye, Jesus can cleanse your soul in a way that has nothing to do with water. Father, thank you this morning for a phenomenal introduction into the holiness of thy person. and the unholiness of mankind and the amazing grace of God that has come to us in Christ. May our thoughts in this venue of things from Matthew chapter 3 continue to stir our hearts and minds at worship. And may your people be benefited by the reminder of the truly glorious thing that you have done for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us then to be a responsive people to thee today. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.